This podcast is sponsored by Sapient Global Markets. Mitigate risk and control the cost of regulatory trade and transaction reporting with Sapient CMRS. Let CMRS assume this heavy burden so you can focus on your core business. To find out more, please go to cmrs.sapient.com. Hello and welcome to a DerivSource podcast. I'm Julia Schiefer, the founder and editor of DerivSource.com. In continuation of our Brexit coverage, in this podcast, we speak to James Doyle, partner in the international debt capital markets team at Hogan Lovells, who explains both why English law will still prevail in the derivatives world post-Brexit, and also the different trading models that could emerge after Article 50 is invoked. We also look at the different scenarios in which London could maintain its dominant position as a major financial hub. Here is DerivSource reporter Lynn Strong and Dodds speaking to James Doyle. Hi, we are here today with James Doyle, partner in International Capital Debt Market Team at Hogan Lovells. Before we begin talking about OTC derivatives, I was wondering, James, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. My name is James Doyle. I'm a partner in the International Debt Capital Markets Group at Hogan Lovells. I head up that group and also my career have specialized in derivatives and structured products. And over the last few weeks, I've very much been focusing on the impact of Brexit and how that might affect our markets. To the first question then, how will legal arrangements change, especially since these bespoke complex, privately negotiated swaps are predicated on English commercial law? In one sense, I mean, the impact of Brexit shouldn't affect the use of English law in the OTC derivatives markets. Derivatives contracts are commonly into using either English or New York law, and we don't expect, in, at least in the short to medium term, that to change dramatically. Although, obviously, in local markets, people might look to use domestic law depending on the particular circumstances. I, mean, I think the biggest change will be in the area of regulation, whereas at the moment, with the UK being part of the European Union, these contracts are entered into with an eye to European Union law that's either directly effective within the UK or has been implemented into English law. And I think that change of status, if, if the UK does, and leave the European Union will cause everyone to look at how regulation affects these contracts and what needs to change both for contracts entered into by parties outside of uh, the European Union and also within the European Union. I think the biggest impact is going to be in the area of regulation. Clearly, some regulations like EMIR are going to be very sensitive to that change and how that will be given effect in the UK will be a key point that we'll be looking at going forward. About 40% of the world's currency trade, worth about $5 trillion a day by notional value, is traded and booked in London, while the UK also accounts for about half of the OTC $600 trillion market. Do you see London losing its status as a result of Brexit? In one sense, that question needs to be looked at once the whatever deal is going to be done with the European Union has been finalized. So it's, it's very early days. And at the moment, we're looking at um, all the kind of options that might happen and the potential routes that 
both within the European Union and in the UK that, that people are looking at following. But you know, if one assumes that Brexit does mean Brexit, that the UK leaves the European Union, then I think people are going to be looking very hard at this question. I think it will mean that overnight London loses that status. I, while there are a number of very important and very big other financial markets within financial centres within the European Union, I don't think there is a kind of a solution where and the whole of London's business will move overnight to another city. But I think it will be something that people look at over time. And I think people or firms will be looking to make sure that they are well-placed to carry on their business and notwithstanding this change of circumstances. This being said, there is a huge volume of expertise and infrastructure within the London market, which will be very difficult to replace overnight. And there is a question of how much local regulators would want that to immediately be transferred to another city. Clearly, local regulators would then need to have oversight of whatever is transferred from London. So I don't see an immediate change and an immediate move of all that, that infrastructure and all that work, but I think that is something that will perhaps happen over a longer term as that new relationship between the UK and the EU develops. I mean, one area that, that people are looking at very closely is the issue of clearing. And I think the what, what happens to clearing euro trades is going to be a very key question um, going forwards. There was a move last year for all euro trades to be cleared by cleared in a country within the single currency. Now, that was found by the ECJ um, to be unlawful and actually no longer taking effect. But actually, with this new relationship, I think that may well be looked at again, albeit the um, financial services chief of the European Commission said yesterday that actually that wasn't a top priority for the commission at the moment. And obviously, there's a lot of other issues they need to consider. So I think in time, there will be the regulators will look at where the euro is, is traded and cleared. But at the current time, I think you know, there are a lot of other issues that need to be considered and that won't be a, a short-term priority. To your earlier point about London having the infrastructure that other cities do not have, I heard one view recently that financial service institutions can set up an office in a different city and then outsource the professional services to firms in London. Do you see this likely and what type of challenges would this pose? It's an interesting question and one I think people are looking very long and hard at it at the moment and how do they continue to access um, the single market now that on the assumption that the UK is no longer within that single market. As I said, it's very, I think, a one-size-fits-all solution to move everything to one particular area and it will be a lot of infrastructure will still need to be in London. How that's actually going to work in practice will need to be discussed with local regulators. But I don't think it's a case of simply setting up a or having a brass plate in a particular country within the European Union and then keeping really what you've already got in London. I think actually it will need to be more than that. I was speaking to a lawyer in Ireland recently and they were saying that actually that this concept of mind and method, the idea is that will has to be some a real presence within the relevant country, key decisions have to be looked at and risk management has to take place in that jurisdiction. So I think there has to be more than simply a brass plate. But at the same time, I think there will be some degree of outsourcing and a recognition by regulators that the whole operation isn't going to move over instantaneously and that there needs to be some measures whereby 
some services will happen within the relevant jurisdiction, some may continue to be provided from outside. But that's a question of degree, it's a question of having conversations with regulators about what's actually satisfactory. And then from there, I think you can form a view. And often it won't be um, the same for each and every institution. I think there may be, depending on particular circumstances, different arrangements that institutions can come up with. But as I say, it will be more than simply a brass plate. And what do you think is the impact on the financial service industry as a whole? I mean, I think the financial services industry as a whole could have done without Brexit. I don't think it's the distraction and it's causing, at a time when there's been a lot of regulation that, that people are struggling to get on top of, then having this in the middle of it is not particularly helpful. I think it's another thing that people need to spend time considering readjusting their, their business to deal with this. It's not particularly helpful by any means. That being said, I'm sure the financial services industry, as it has in the past, will adapt. It will deal with this. I mean, I think there is a further point really about the regulation of the financial services industry, because both, both within the UK and actually within the European Union, if the UK ceases to be a member of the European Union, then the FCA won't be involved in the development of European legislation, particularly European financial services legislation. At the moment, the FCA has often taken a lead role in developing that legislation. And we see with key uh, matters such as PRIPS and EMEA, and the FCA has played an integral role in, in developing that and making sure it works both in order to achieve the aim of regulators, but also in a practical sense works for the industry. And I think the FCA is, used, is looked at for its role in this regard. So if the FCA is no longer there, other regulators are going to have to take up that mantle. And I think that will be something that you know, maybe is not as easy as people think. And actually, the FCA may well be, be missed for the role they've played in developing European financial services regulation within the European Union. I mean, at the same time, within the UK, just because we've left the European Union doesn't mean that the FCA is not going to carry on taking a very stringent look at the financial services industry. And so, I think for those hoping for a, a lighter standard regulation, that, that may well not be the case, and the, F, the FCA may continue to look uh, rigorously at how we sell and, and deal with financial services. And similarly, depending on what deal we actually end up with with the European Union, there may be some kind of equivalent standard that the FCA wants to put in place or the government wants to put in place. So we actually may end up having the same level of regulation or type of regulation that would have been the case had we still been in the European Union, albeit perhaps without the added benefit of having the FCA at the table in terms of developing that legislation so it works for, for the financial services industry in the UK. And finally, talking about the deal, there is a lot of talk about passporting, but can you please explain what the different options are? So the Norway versus Swiss and WTO or any other model that has been bandied about. In one sense, I think there's specific models, as you say, that people have looked at. So there's broadly, I've categorized that in four different areas. Firstly, I suppose that we stay within the European Union and some kind of deals struck. I think given the statements that have been made previously, I think that's much less likely now. The second model is effectively we become part of the EEA, so part of the wider European body, but not a member of the European Union, and that's the way Norway have gone. So they get some of the benefits of the European Union, like a single market, but at the same time they have to sign up to a lot of the legislation that, that governs that single market.
laws that give those benefits. And given the political climate, that may or may not be attractive. The second type of deal that could be reached is to effectively go for the idea of reaching bilateral agreements. So entering into trade agreements with the European Union and with other countries around the world. And that's a specific deal that would be done. What the terms of that deal will depend on how the negotiations take place. But you know, that may involve access to the single market or parts of the single market. But the question is, what costs will come with that? And will that be politically be acceptable? The other issue with that model is the time it takes to negotiate those agreements. When the Article 50 notice is served, there's two years to actually implement, agree those terms before Britain exits the European Union. And those are very complex negotiations and, and will take time. The last option is effectively a full exit from the European Union, no bilateral trade agreements with the European Union or other countries, and really just falling back to the World Trade Organization's rules, which is really a default option, which have the advantage meaning the UK isn't subject to any European Union law, but at the same time won't give access to the single market, so won't achieve the benefits of passporting that many are looking to maintain. Where will we end up? I suspect maybe a mixture of a number of different options. If we had this conversation in two or three years' time, there may be a new option, which is the, the UK model, which is a mixture of a number of different pieces. And I don't think there will be a one-size-fits-all. I think there will be a, the UK will negotiate its own way in terms of how it deals with the EU and other countries. Well, thank you very much for your insights. It's been much appreciated. Thank you very much. It's been very good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us in this DerivSource podcast. To see more information on this topic, please go to the podcast show notes page on DerivSource.com. Thank you for joining us. Join us next time.